Welcome back to the Criminal Maze podcast. Um, this is the second half of our conversation with Dame Vanessa Frake. Yeah, well, I mean, one part of your job and one quote that I picked up from the book was running the security in a prison wasn't just about making sure criminals were locked up. It was also about policing the inside to protect those on the outside. And from the book, I learned that your team within the prison service or the, within the prison foiled an al-Qaeda attack. Um, well, I say I, I didn't, we didn't foil an al-Qaeda attack. We helped to prevent one, yeah. There was, there was um, I mean, I can't, I can't really say kind of too much on it, but, but basically, you know, prisons are a hub of information and intelligence. And, um, you know, it's all about spotting the little things that um, are just a tiny piece in a, in a jigsaw. And, and that one little piece can, can make a whole picture, you know, and, and that's basically what happened. We had some intelligence come in um, that we passed to the police um, who were, um investigating the the possibility of a terrorist attack in in manchester and um you know thankfully that was that one was prevented so you know it that's one of the one of the things i love to do was to liaise with other agencies and 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 sort of because sometimes the police had the view well we've we've arrested them they've been to court they've been sentenced that's our job done but actually no it wasn't and the intelligence you got within prison was that prisoners coming to you or mainly overhearing conversations well it can be it can be anything you know for me personally dynamic security the, the ability to to talk to prisoners to find out things to gain their trust is is invaluable and i used to teach staff that you know there is when you when you work closely with prisoners and you walk onto a wing and you can feel that there's an atmosphere and you can see that doors quickly shut or prisoners go behind their doors quickly or um you know it it's it's all about making an intelligence picture i mean when when i when i got potted <laughs> which for those who don't know I just, yeah can you just fairly unpleasant yeah. um, I'd you... upset this prisoner um on d-wing at Wormwood Scrubs and um he decided that um uh, it's this thing called potting is where they fill up a a water bottle with feces urine and leave it for a couple of days shake it up and then throw it over somebody and I knew like Somebody, a, a prisoner came to me and warned me. He didn't say you're going to get pointed. He just said, watch your back, Gov. Um, there's somebody who's who's after you. And and. But what can you do with that information? <laughs> well, you know, I, I put it on an SI. I don't, it's not going to stop me doing my job. You know, that you just are a bit more possibly alert. Although I, I always considered I was a, alert 100% of the time. I think you have to be. But, um, you know, it happened. Uh, it wasn't very pleasant. Uh, thankfully, it only ever happened once in my career. And the the prisoner that told me that, um, you know, watched my back um, later told me who it was who did it. And, um, you know, that's intelligence systems are developed over time. And, um, you know, 
one of the things that we brought in at, at Scrubs was the Ripper, which is the Regulatory Investigatory Powers Act, um, and it's how to run chizzes. Um, and uh, chiz, chiz um, from um, Line of Duty, uh, which is um, a covert human intelligence source. And uh, it gives prisoners much more protection than, you know, calling them snouts, grasses, whatever you want, expletive you want to use. So it, it, it's, it's how to protect them if they um, inform on, on other prisoners. And do they get anything in return for informing on other prisoners? They can do, um, depending on what the information is and, um, you know, how accurate it is. I have written to um, a judge pre-sentence on a prisoner um, before stating that he was uh, had provided intelligence which was very good for the prison so that there are things like that there could be a canteen reward up to a certain amount it all depends and was it intelligence that led to the arrest and conviction of a prison officer bringing items into the prison well, you see, I used to say to staff, prisoners can't hold their own water. And when when you're in the pocket of prisoners, you have nowhere to go. You know, once once prisoners are have had enough or have had um, maybe a parcel hasn't quite been right or they think that you're you're sort of skimming a bit off or, or whatever, um, they will turn on you quickly very quickly and you know it, it, prisoners tell staff things for different reasons you know it might be that you know they want to get one over on whoever's running it they want to um don't like the officer who they know is ben it, it might be all sorts of all sorts of reasons and um it was intelligence we knew that there was a an officer that was bringing in drugs we hadn't pinpointed it we worked hard and then it um it came to um there was a, a prisoner who ended up down the seg on good order and discipline and um he was found with a mobile phone on him and that mobile phone was sent up to our head office where um, the data was downloaded. And then the data was compared against all staff's phone numbers. And it was uh, matched up to this one prison officer. And um, that's how it kind of started. And then if actually catching somebody in the act is incredibly, you have to be, well, I used to say, they have to be lucky every time. You only have to be lucky once. Um, and um, But it is incredibly difficult to actually catch somebody in the act um, for a number of reasons. Um, but, um, you know, we were lucky this one time and she was unlucky. So that's, you know, there is no greater find than, um, than catching somebody red-handed. Because drugs is a large issue in prisons. And I know that you had a positive impact in Wormwood Scrubs by helping to install a netting to stop drugs coming over. Um, before that netting was introduced, how were drugs getting into the prison? Well, the thing with drugs is, is they're quite 
easy to move around a jail. They're easy to get in a jail. And unless you you have absolutely no contact with prisoners, that's either staff, uh, chaplains, that's everybody, and you lock them in a glass room, you're always going to get drugs in prison. The the issue is, is how you control that. And before we had the netting put in, we were getting, we would get in uh, probably 20 to 30 parcels a day um, over the wall. So somebody would walk past the wall opposite Hammersmith Hospital and lob a parcel over in the hope that one of the trusted, I say that term loosely, um, prisoners who were out cleaning the grounds would pick it up and then it's lost. Um, and those were the ones we were getting. So goodness knows how many we actually were coming over. The ones that were coming in the dead of night or it doesn't matter like, you know, how many patrols you put around. They were coming over in tennis balls um, because we have drug dogs. And so nobody would think of looking in a tennis ball. They were coming over in um, dead pigeons that had been sewn up the middle, stuffed with drugs. They were coming in via visits. Um, dirty nappies on babies um we had um literally like um staff visitors you know they were they were just coming it's a constant battle in any jail and it's you know you you shut one door and another one opens so you find one route and another one will start and touching on prisoners i read that there was a a lady pretending to be a solicitor coming in bringing drugs yeah, I mean sh that was intelligence that um, that that sorted that out. Um, but interestingly, she'd been around other prisons. She'd been to Belmarsh, which is a Category A prison. She'd been to Manchester, another Category A prison, um, before she'd come to us. So this woman was was um, going around the um, whole circuit of prisons. Um, posing as a solicitor and um, and bringing drugs in because you know as you well know visits with with legal teams are are in sight but not in sound of a prison officer so you know the the, the it was a very good it was a very good um find you've you've touched on segregation um for people that don't know could you explain what the segregation unit is please the segregation unit is a is a smaller unit which is um better staffed and it houses three different types of prisoners. It houses prisoners who are on punishment, who have uh, broken prison rules and um, received cellular confinement um, for, for whatever reason. It houses prisoners who are, have been placed there by a governor grade on good order and discipline. So that might be um, for a number of reasons. Um, it could be uh, threats against a member of staff. It could be threats against another prisoner. Could be um, also he could be there on Rule 43, which is um, for his own protection. So it may be his offence. It may be that he uh, is a debtor, that he owes money um, and has asked for Rule 43. So that's the three sort of different categories of prisoner you get in a segregation unit. And they're not, they're not, um, they have strict exercise times. They're, they're served meals like one at a time. There's only ever one who is unlocked at a time. So it's a much stricter regime. Are they treated differently if they're there on Rule 43 compared to for punishment? 
Yes, because if they're if they're um, rule 43, they're not there because they're under punishment. They're there for their own protection. So they would get all of their clothes. They'd get um, if they were um, had a TV, they'd get a TV. If they were like had a PlayStation, if they were maybe a super enhanced prisoner, they'd get their PlayStation. So it's it's they'd get everything that they're entitled to on the wing. They get on Rule Forty Three. And do they get the association time together with other Rule Forty Three prisoners? Can do. It depends. It depends what the regime is on 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 the wing. I mean, when when I was at Holloway, we used to have Rose Weston and another uh, prisoner who was uh, also Rule Forty Three out together in the evening on association. You've mentioned Rose West, and I read in your book that she would watch television with another inmate. And the other inmate didn't actually realise it was Rose West until she'd moved on. Yeah, I mean, that is actually a true a true story. Um, the, the the lady concerned was a J- Jamaican yardie, part of a big Jamaican um, drug gang. And she turned uh, Queen's evidence against the gang. So she was there for her own protection. And every evening, about six o'clock, we used to get the pair of them out to watch a bit of TV, have a cup of tea, knit together have a chat because again they were on rule 43 they weren't there under punishment they were no problem either of them to be honest and um we had rose at holloway for about six weeks prior to her trial at winchester crown and because uh, winchester prison didn't have a uh, female unit so we had her at holloway and then just before her trial we sent her down and winchester sort of made a a little unit for her um, and um, so when Rose had gone, the following evening, again, we'd, we'd got the, the said lady out and um, Rose was on the TV being taken into uh, Winchester Crown Court. And she, this lady sort of said, um, you know, how terrible it was, what she'd done or, and, you know, was sort of... Um, shocked at Rose West etc etc and and myself and another officer were stood watching the news with her and and we just looked at each other and I just couldn't resist I said well who do you think you've been sat next to for the past six weeks and she just like looked at me and just like I thought she was actually going to pass out but she was like oh miss miss no 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 that's not possible and I was like her name was Rose you kept calling her Rose and she had absolutely no idea god love her incredible I mean yeah but that that is that is prison life you know there there are some 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 very upsetting some very sad but some very funny um moments I was so I was gonna ask um so in 2002, I think, was when you moved from Holloway to, to Wormwood Scrubs. Yeah. And it seemed to be quite an abrupt move. Um, and I think you've, you've, you've mentioned in, in other interviews, I think, that you, that you actually prefer, and, and I think you, you said it earlier today even, that, it's, um, that maybe you prefer working um, in men's prisons. Um, and I, I think I've heard you say that Perhaps one of the reasons behind it was that you've noticed women can sometimes carry with them a different kind of emotional baggage. Like they might be caregivers in their family that are then left outside. They might be victims of abuse. Um, and I thought that was, I just thought that was a really interesting thing to pick up on then as a governor and then how you interact. Um, and that sort of 
ecosystem you were talking about earlier of like trust and the danger then when that gets broken because you've got a bent officer or whatever um but i this is a very rambling question <laughs> but i guess i'm trying to ask what yeah from your perspective what were the different challenges um and when you when you arrived at wormwood scrubs i think without a doubt i was um quite shocked at how much respect prisoners showed female staff whereas women didn't at all you know at all but I was quite shocked at how I mean obviously there were times where you know you you came to clash with a with a, a prisoner mm-hmm. um, but on the main in the main prisoners were much more respectful to female staff than to the male staff um, to the point where if one I've I've seen it many times where one one prisoner's say having a, a go at a female member of staff, uh, another prisoner will come along and say, you know, sharp, right. you know, you know, she's a good officer, leave her alone. Um, and I don't know whether that's that kind of male protection instinct still still there, even in a in a in a prison setting. Um, but you touched on it briefly. I mean a lot of women's crimes are based around um, their their caregiver status. So, you know, trying to feed their families, you know, um, and women are much more likely to get a prison sentence for a first offence than men are, which is interesting and still the same today. And, um, you know, women, women, I'm not saying that men aren't abused, um, but... The majority of women in prison have suffered some form of abuse, whether that's physical, sexual, mental. And um, and that has sort of blighted how they've reacted to things, which inevitably has ended up them being in prison. Mm-hmm. And of course, women are much more emotional, full stop, than, than men are. They're much more likely to strike out first and ask questions later rather than build up this big crescendo and then throw a punch. My favourite one, though, is, um, you know, when you when you've got a a wing of, say, 90 women and they've all got premenstrual tension at the same time (laughs) to say nothing of the staff as well. You know, it it can be very volatile. Perfect. Um, Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, it's absolutely. Uh, You know, I've seen I've seen near riots over the size of a Christmas pud uh, (laughs) in 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 Holloway and um, things can just spark very quickly. Um, and of course, the the worst thing is the self harm with women. Um, there is self harm with men. Don't get me wrong, but nothing on the scale that that happens in a women's jail. Um, you know, out of say ninety prisoners on a wing, you might have thirty of them with um, on like a, a suicide watch. You know, it's incredible amounts of of self harm, and some of it quite violent self-harm you know not just sort of scratching but um i've seen prisoners try and take their eyeballs out i've seen a prisoner who actually bit her her skin there and took a huge piece of skin out that you could actually see her 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 thumb bone you know to do that to yourself you know is just it's very difficult to watch somebody do that and and to think what sort of state are they in that that is acceptable 
Um, and we had we had one prisoner who was a pro prolific self-harmer who unfortunately passed away now. But um, she um, she used to take a biro and stick it in her skin and down her leg into into near enough into the vein in her leg. And she re would refuse medical help. And then one morning you'd walk in and she'll go, Miss, I think I'll better go to hospital now. And you go, all right, then. And then you arranged to get her out to hospital and she'd accept medical treatment. I mean, that you know, some some of the the self-harm in, in in a female jail is 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 un unbelievable to see, to be honest. And hearing those stories, do you sometimes think that prison isn't the right place for these people? Oh, without a doubt. There are far, far too many prisoners in prison that shouldn't be there that have mental health issues and you know the the staff try their hardest uh we had we had a guy in um in wormwood scrubs who had several split personalities and um he used to argue with himself on a daily basis as two different people to the point where he he would smash up his room and try and hurt the other person but actually was just hurting himself. And um, to talk him round was 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 heart-wrenching, really, to, to think that, you know, somebody was in prison. I mean, he, he was there for nothing serious, you know, but he, he should never have been there. But, of course, if somebody breaks the law, what, what do you do? Because, you know, there, there's all this sort of care in the community, but actually the community doesn't really care, does it? You know, it's not in my backyard to a point. It's really striking how you and other guests that we had that work in prisons, another prison officer, Dr Amanda Brown, you spoke with, um, spoke about earlier, that we spoke with in the last series. I think all three of you made this point that no, by, by no stretch would, uh, would you, you come across as somebody who's like soft on crime or on you know the punishment of crime, but that it's just not an appropriate place for some people to be in a prison. And I wondered if you if you think that that is actually understood and if not, kind of what's the role that you think the media plays in maybe a misunderstanding that people have about the prison system? And if you could kind of snap your fingers and make one thing that you think people don't quite understand or is is in like is just not correct, what would you change about that display? Oh, gosh. I mean, it has improved. You know, we now have things like outreach and inreach that work with prisoners with with mental health issues inside the jail and follows them outside the jail. So it has it has improved to a degree. My point is that, you know, as a as a member of staff at any rank, I never had any um, instruction on dealing with prisoners with mental health issues. And I think, you know, when you see somebody sort of attacking somebody else, you automatically think you don't think that that person's got mental health issues. You just think that, that you know, there's a fight going on. Yeah. And, and for staff, it's very difficult. You know, we, we, we had we had one one prisoner at Wilmot Scrubs who who was. Um, he was clearly. Um, had mental health issues, but he his mental health issues came out as violence and he was 
in the segregation unit because you couldn't you couldn't have him on a wing because he'd attack prisoners he'd attack staff and so he ended up being something like a a senior officer in six just to unlock him to get him out for a shower you know and um uh, um a um he was due for release and obviously the prison both the healthcare and the discipline side were very concerned that we were going to end up releasing this individual into into the community and uh, so the healthcare managed to get a um, a doctor from i think it was broadmoor to come and assess this chap for um to see if he met the criteria for broadmoor and when he'd done the assessment i happened to be at the stand at the seg at that time and i was chatting to him and he said to me well, of course, he doesn't fit our criteria for Broadmoor at this precise moment in time. However, if he goes out into the community and 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 commits murder or something like that, we'll take him to Broadmoor. Now, imagine how the victim's family who he goes on to murder is going to feel knowing that 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 was said, and 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 that's kind of what what you're up against. I mean, it is it is incredibly difficult. I, I I honestly, I don't know. I think there has to be a complete overhaul of of the the mental health um, practice of putting people with clear mental health issues and mental health issues that have contributed to why they're in prison. You know, mm. people that. You know who are homeless, who sleep in doorways, who who have nowhere else to go, who you know represented our country in in wars in in God knows what. You know, I just think that as a nation we need to be a much more compassionate nation, and and being compassionate doesn't mean being weak, and it doesn't mean that we're soft on crime. I think that's what I would try and get across to people just because you're compassionate doesn't mean to say that you're soft on crime but we seem to make a gray area between the two so if you're if you're if you're compassionate then you're one of these lefties that you know want don't want prisons at all because prisons do have a place in society it's just we need to make sure that they have the right place in society and so kind of leads on nicely from that obviously you've spent over a quarter of a century working in that oh, system well, to... that makes me feel very Sorry. old <laughs> thank you i should have said you a superlative level of experience i don't know <laughs> but it was I'm not bothered <laughs> and it was ultimately recognized um very um prestigiously when you you were awarded an mbe for the work that you've done um in the prison service and um we'd just love it if you could tell us a bit about what that experience was like um well I once said it was my proudest moment, but then my wife said, well, what about the day we got married? So <laughs> I've had to kind of, I've had to kind of change that slightly. Um, it was one of the, the best days of my life. Um, I was completely, I mean, when I got the letter, 
Um, I had to read it three or four times. I actually didn't believe that it so was the same. So you're not told that you're like on a shortlist or anything? I don't know how. I had no idea whatsoever. Just just I, I got home from work one day and there was a white envelope, which always usually spells trouble, doesn't it, <laughs> on, the, on the doormat. And then it had no stamp and it had Frank 10 Downing Street. And I was like, what? <laughs> and um, I opened it and, and it said that the, the Prime Minister has deemed to inform the Queen that um, you be awarded a member of the British Empire. And I'm, I'm well, I must have read it 10 times. And I was like, I just, I couldn't believe it. And I couldn't, I didn't really think that I'd done anything more than my job. I, I mean, I enjoyed my job. And when I enjoy something, I do it 110%, you know? And um, that's why I didn't kind of get on at school, really, because I hated school with a passion. And I was quite bullied, actually, at school. If I mean, it wasn't called bullying then. It was, but um, I, I hated it. So, like, I came out of school with, like, one ology and, you know, a few CSEs to my name. So... Um, but when I, when I enjoy something, I put everything into it. And I really did enjoy my job. Times, mm -hmm. some, some days weren't as good as others, but, you know, that's, that's life. But, you know, reading, reading that, I thought I couldn't understand why, what I'd done that was so amazing. You know, you just read of people who get them. You, I, mm -hmm. you never think that it's going to be you. And, um, you know, I, I've always had a bit of a, a difficult relationship with my with my mother mm -hmm. um and I've always kind of wanted to please her and so when I told her and she said um how proud she was well that made me feel even better because the relationship I have with my mother I think sort of has been difficult and sometimes still is a little bit difficult um but um you know that's you are who you are aren't you but that day was was amazing it was meeting the queen you know i've met princess anne twice actually i've met various individuals and and that but 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 meeting the queen in in the 60th year you know and she was so lovely it, really? it was it was just an amazing moment and um one that I shall never forget and I wear it proudly I do this is a bit of a like an abrupt change now sorry but um because um, in your book you then it's not long after you receive that I think that you 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 retire um it and it's that was in 2013 and even though the book covers like the quite horrific um incidents um, it's still so jarring, just that account of how you find out that you're retiring. It seems so sudden and not in line with the fact that you've been recognised with an MBE, the fact that you've got over a quarter of a century service behind you. And then to be told, well, I, I'm going to ask you to tell the story of how you find out about it, but it seems almost that it, you deserve more time and almost, frankly, respect well, the first thing I'll say is that I learned very quickly that you are but a number in the prison service. And, um, you know, they they got rid of the personnel departments and stopped calling it that and called it shared services. And personnel always meant to me that it they were personal. You know, you went in to see them. It was face to face. 
the shared services department was a voice at the end of the telephone um, in, I think it was South Wales. It was in Wales somewhere. Um, and um, so that sort of personalization was completely removed. So the civil servant on the end of the phone had no idea about who he was talking to or he was just literally sent to send a message. Um, but it had started, if I go back, it had started in 2012 when, I don't know, I felt that I'd kind of reached the pinnacle of my career. I'd, I'd, as you said, I'd, I'd had my MBE. Things were going well. Scrubs was good. It was in the limelight. It was safe. We were getting good uh, IMB reports, which was... Um, I can't actually remember what IMB stands for. Like um, Board of Visitors, they were used to be called. But um, they're sort of lay people that come in and do inspections. Oh, yeah, Chief Inspectorate. Thank you. <laughs> um, and um, good security reports. But but there was an undercurrent of, of um, people coming in and looking at how much money you were spending and where cuts could be made. And, um, you know, I was responsible for receptions, the communications, the gates, uh, security, the intelligence department, visits, receptions. You know, I had a, a wide range of responsibilities and they basically came in and said, well, you're going to be the head of security and, and that's it. We're going to take all these others away from you. And I felt, I won't lie, I felt peeved because I thought, well, you know, I've put so much effort into all of my departments. Um, and I had worked tirelessly trying to, trying to manage them all and, and make sure that they were all at the top of their game and um these people sort of came in and did a hatchet job on it all and i felt well maybe it maybe it is time for me to leave and maybe maybe it needs new eyes and you know our daughter was was seven eight then and she was um she was always the first in childcare and always the last out helping clear away and i thought well maybe maybe it's time i i spent a bit of time i i was i was I was just 50 mm. and um, so I applied, I spoke to the number one governor about it who wasn't happy, but he could see um, my reasoning. Yeah. And then, of course he always states the bleeding obvious. Well, who am I going to replace you with? You know? <laughs> it's like, uh, not my problem. But, exactly. Uh, <laughs> and, then, um, and then so I applied for this scheme, which basically meant that, I would take early retirement, uh, I would take uh, redundancy and put my redundancy pay into my pension and draw my pension. Because I joined when I joined, um, I was one of the lucky few who had a decent pension and decent pension rights. I could have gone anyways at 55 if I'd have wanted. So that's, that was the plan. Anyways, they kept me waiting from August through to the, I think it was the 27th of February, 2013, um, of the afternoon, about three o'clock. And I kept ringing them and writing emails and getting fubbed off. And um, I got this, I was in my office, I got this phone call and it said, uh, oh, Governor Freight, you're retiring tomorrow, 28th of February, be your last day. And I was like, 
like somebody had sort of punched me in the stomach and completely like taken the wind out of myself because although I wanted it to happen the way it happened I was I was just I thought well there's people that aren't going to be here that I want yeah. to say goodbye to and um so that's that's pretty much what happened and you know I said as much goodbyes as I possibly could um and initially it was like I'd just taken a couple of weeks leave but then when the reality starts to sink in and then you think and for anybody out there who has retired you suddenly start to think well what's my place in society now what do I do you know how do I how do I function as a sort of fully paid up member of society and um, I went through all sorts of things in my head um, I think like the menopause suddenly kicked in I hadn't had any anything but I once read that there was like 35 symptoms of the menopause and I think I ticked every single one of them and um, like you know it's it's my health definitely suffered without a doubt and i and i do blame that on the suddenness that that it all happens um and i hadn't quite prepared myself um enough in case that had happened because i didn't quite think that it would be sort yeah. of you know 24 hours notice yeah. so yeah i mean it it did it did it did sort of make me um well, you know, the book says, you know, I, I did suffer from some anxiety and some mental health issues. And, um, you know, and I think that was part of the reason why I, I eventually agreed to to write the book was, you know, I found it quite cathartic. And, and there were obviously yeah. things in my head that needed put into bed. And uh, the book helped me do that. I, yeah. One of the things I thought about that as well was because you've mentioned today and, and in other interviews, I think, like, you can't be frightened doing that job, although you might think objectively like there's lots of things to be frightened about, but in order to do the job, you can't allow yourself to feel fear. And I wondered whether just that level of like emotional control over such a long period of time. And then, yeah, like you said, like being able to write this book um, and pour some of that into it. It's so valuable for everybody that's able to read it as well. And it's great that you got catharsis from it as well. <laughs> I mean, I, I agree. I mean, you know, if you could ask anybody who was ever one of my deputies, you know, I am a control freak. I micromanage. And much as I tried not to, it was sort of like losing control and, and, and not knowing what to do. And I've always known what to do, you know, what to do in the case of an escape, what to do in the case of a suicide, but now what to do in society. So, yeah, it was very difficult. I did find it difficult and it took me a good I'd say 18 months to to come round to to being retired and to find other interests and you know I was lucky the first thing on my shopping list was my two Labrador puppies and um, everybody said you are mad to have two Labrador puppies at the same time and I went well you know the cat fits and bless them they're still around today so fantastic so Vanessa thank you so much for your time today um, and also for writing the book because it is fascinating and it's been it's been lovely talking to you today. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you for having me and for inviting me on. I've really enjoyed meeting you both. Oh, good. Thanks so much. So that that was Vanessa Frake. Um, fascinating insight into working inside a prison. 
um, found it incredible that she n- was never scared throughout her career in the prison mm-hmm. system. Mm-hmm. And yeah, just a, a really impressive and friendly, fun person. Yeah. Thank you so much for listening with us. And um, yeah, we hope you'll join us again at another junction within the criminal maze. Mm-hmm.